everybody, and thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Hope you had a great Christmas. Hope you're looking forward to a fun new year. This will be the the wrap of Bible Breakdown for the year of 2021, but we'll be back in 2022. We're not going anywhere. So, um, but I am excited after missing last week uh, to be back talking about our lessons here. As you know, we've been in Genesis. We did do a Christmas lesson uh, for the last Bible breakdown just for the sake of the season. But we will be back in Genesis this week looking specifically at chapter 21 and chapter 22, which will be the birth of Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac. Always a very awkward story to imagine in your mind if you were like fly on the wall for that. We will talk about it and we will see um, some also... We are fortunate in this story that we get some commentary from later in scripture to help kind of round the story out for us. So that's helpful. We're also going to talk about uh, Ishmael a little bit. We didn't really talk about him when he first came up. We will we will hit that this time. We're going to talk about the rights of primogeniture, which sounds which is as fun as it sounds, I will say. And then we are also going to talk about the oath that God makes to Abram here in chapter 22. We've got some really good things. Before I started, I had to take off my jacket because I was getting too excited and I was getting sweaty, but also it's in the 70s, so that's also part of it. But we've got some good good stuff here today. Don't think about me being sweaty too much, I guess. Shouldn't have said that. Come on, Blake, stick to the notes. All right, here we go. So in chapter 21, we are alerted to the birth of Isaac, which of course we're going to see is a huge answer to Abraham and Sarah's prayers and God's promise to them. So starting in verse 1, says this, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I've borne him a son in his old age. So it's been long promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a son and it finally happened. And Isaac, he's the, he's the one, he's the promised one that they were waiting for. And what we see here is um, a couple of different things. Um, Abram was, Abraham was a hundred at this point. So um, good for Abraham for just living to 100, living in the ancient Near East. Obviously, God was with him. Um, and then Sarah obviously was, I forget, we, we see somewhere in scripture how much younger. It's not that much, maybe like 10 years at the most. So she's she's super old, way past childbearing years. So also another miracle uh, of God. Sarah is obviously overjoyed when she sees this comes true. And we get this really, this thing about the laughing in verse six is really kind of interesting. Um, cause it's going to kind of work backwards and forwards. So if you remember, it's been a while since we talked about it, but, um, God like visits Abram near these oaks, um, in the place called, uh, Mamre. And, uh, Sarah overhears God telling Abraham about the child and she like laughs in the tent. And then God's like, were you laughing? And she's like, no, it wasn't me. And God's like, I know you were laughing. And so there's that little episode that we get about her laughter. And so she here says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. So it's, I think, kind of calling to mind, almost like I doubted, but he made it come true. 
Um, we're also going to see a little bit about laughter in this next paragraph. Um, but so, of course, there's all this joy that Abraham was promised that um, he would be made a great nation. Hard to do that when you don't have any offspring. Um, but of course, he did already have one offspring. What about Ishmael? So Ishmael, you may remember um, when Sarah and Abraham start to get a little bit frustrated that they're not having a kid. Um, Sarah tells Abraham, hey, um, you and Hagar, um, Hagar can be kind of a surrogate for me. So this obviously was a, an act of, um, uh, it was a lack of faith on their part because God had promised them. This was very common in the ancient, ancient Near East, though I don't think that means that that's what God wanted for them or for anyone in the ancient Near East, but this was common. So it wasn't some, some like totally random thing or like the first sign of polygamy or anything like that. But all that to say, Hagar does bear a sign. His name is Ishmael. And so we're actually going to see the difference between uh, this time and then is about 14 years. So Abram was 86 when Ishmael was born. Isaac, uh, when Isaac was born, he's 100. So about 14 years difference between the two. But it does beg the question, what about Ishmael? He is the first born son to Abraham, even though it's not to Sarah. So we're going to see what happens to him. All right. So moving down into verse eight, it says, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So we see the uh, thing about the laughing comes up again. So now she had, she had laughed out of doubt. She laughs out of joy. And then now it's this laugh from Ishmael that is kind of moving the story forward, so to speak, with Ishmael and what it's going to look like for him to be Abraham's heir. So um, this laughter was clearly not, it was not necessarily, it's not something we should think of as like lighthearted. Um, there's a few different words that this word could be interpreted. And even as laughing, it's kind of this idea of mockery. Um, which you can imagine. Uh, so Isaac would have probably been two or three is what um, the commentary I read said when he was being weaned. So he's like 15, 16, 17 uh, is Ishmael. And so he's probably like, what a silly baby. He's just now eating food. Um, who knows if that was the nature of the mocking or not. But he was. this was clearly like a laughter that was mocking. We actually are fortunate too to not just have to infer that from Sarah's response because she obviously is a little biased. And we're going to talk about that. But Paul, uh, he refers to Ishmael persecuting Isaac in Galatians 4 as he recounts the story. So um, Paul, of course, also a little biased as a descendant of Isaac and knowing that Isaac is the son of the promise. Um, so it, it seems like to me, like this was just a powder keg ready to go off. Um, Sarah's heart really seems rooted in this fear that Ishmael will compete for Isaac's spot for his inheritance more than like she's really worried that Ishmael is going to harm Isaac. And, and she says as much, he shall not be son, heir with my son Isaac. And you can imagine that she wants her son to receive the full inheritance and not Ishmael. So Abraham is not real happy to be caught in this kind of situation. Another great example of why God's design is for uh, monogamy and for lifelong relationship and is not meant to involve polygamy because, of course, instances like this happen with us as humans. So he's not sure what to do, but God assures Abraham that Ishmael is going to be okay. 
and that he's going to be taken care of and that because he is of Abraham Abraham's that he's Abraham's offspring he is going to become a great nation so all right so he's feeling pretty good about that so um Abraham ends up giving some bread and water to Hagar and sends her away and sends Ishmael away and into the wilderness basically so a pretty pretty tough lot for Hagar and Ishmael um there in the rest of chapter or in the next uh, paragraph in chapter 21 of Genesis, we kind of get a, what happens to them. And basically what happens is they run out of water. They're in the wilderness. Um, basically Hagar leaves Ishmael to die. And it says that she gets the distance of a bow shot from him, which has some significance for who Ishmael will become. And she basically just waits for him to die, but she doesn't want to see him die. So she gets kind of far away from him. So she lays him, uh, in a bush kind of thing, which is interesting because he's again, he's like 17 maybe. So I don't know if he was just that, like maybe he was totally physically unable to continue. And she had to like drag him under the bush. Who who knows? Um, but it's not like he's a, a baby probably. So she leaves, but an angel calls uh, and God provides a, a well. She the angel promises God is going to turn him into a nation and you will be taken care of. And so then God provides this well where they get water and they go on. And then we go on to find out that uh, he settles in a wilderness called Paran and then he becomes an expert with the bow. So that's where that little, probably the distance of a bow shot kind of comes up um, of how, of why, you know, it said that it does seem very random. But he becomes an expert with the bow. So it seems now very appropriate as we look on to that. So, uh, and as far as him growing into a nation, a lot of times you will hear, and I'm sure many of you have heard, that um, Muslims, specifically Muslims, not just any um, Arabs, will like trace their lineage back to Abraham through Ishmael. And that is true. And in fact, I read that in the Quran that uh, Muhammad made that very claim. Now, there's it's probably not totally inaccurate um this area that they believe uh, ishmael's descendants settled in is in the kind of arabian peninsula area so as far as being the ancestors of some arabs is probably definitely true um, but it's not something so pointed as for muslims in general and it's it wouldn't even be as easy as all arab people because in actuality the people of israel would be you would say they're similar to Arabs. Obviously, religiously, they're different and they're God's people and they're the people of Israel. So it's unique in that. But as far as how we would define people groups physically, they would look very similar. So it's kind of, you're kind of splitting hairs there a little bit too, um, to say, oh, well, it's the Israelites and then the Arabs. They're all kind of considered Arab um, in their appearance. Um, they're chosen of God and that's what makes them different. All that to say, these descendants of Ishmael likely are um, people who are descended from modern day Arabian Peninsula, that area, um, even in some of the Middle East. So interesting, some, but some, uh, some people will make a more religious point about it, especially referring to Islam. So um, just kind of know that that's out there. And it's kind of, it's kind of hard to really point to an ancestor of a religion that came uh, let's see, I think it was Islam was in like five to 600 AD. So we're talking about, you know, what, 2000 years from the time that 
the ancestor was born and the religion was established. So it's a little tougher to draw a direct line from a descendant to a to a religion. Unlike Abraham, who it's directly from Abraham to his people, they go to Egypt, God leads them out, all that, and then they're given the law. It's a little bit straighter line there. Anyway, get off of that, though, continue to talk about Ishmael, because I do want to talk about this idea that you're probably familiar with. You probably just didn't know it's called this, but the rights of primogeniture. So that is basically the rights of the firstborn. And it's a, a Latin word as its root. Um, so primogeniture just meaning firstborn. And this is very common in the ancient Near East that the firstborn male uh, received the greatest part of the inheritance or greatest portion or all of the inheritance or the blessing of the family. Um, and you maybe are even calling to mind uh, instances that will come after Abraham with his children and grandchildren and where this will come up. Um, so it was very common in the ancient Near East where all the story is taking place that uh, the firstborn would receive the inheritance, firstborn son. And it's even common and has been common in uh, cultures now, uh, even as recently as a couple hundred years ago, even in our country, things were often that way. Um, and then in, there's many cultures where that still exists today. So this is something that is ancient in origin, but still plays out uh, in, in our modern world. So this is a very deeply rooted uh, right um, idea that exists for the firstborn. So all of the firstborns would uh, be the inheritors, as I mentioned, and they were also typically greatly favored. So they were seen as the most valuable, not just to the family, but also to society. So important thing about that. But scripture regularly overturns this tradition. We see that in the stories of God's people and how God works through humanity to accomplish his purposes, we see this tradition this right of primogeniture is regularly overturned. Here is a smattering of examples, and there are more. But uh, Abel was regarded as the righteous one as opposed to Cain. So that doesn't necessarily have to do with inheritance, as neither of those two is going to inherit from their family, because Abel is killed by Cain, and then Cain is exiled. But as far as favor, you would expect that Cain would be the one who would bring the better offering than Abel, but it's Abel. Um, then also, of course, we know that Jacob was the second born. So Isaac's son, Jacob, was second born to Esau. He came out grasping his heel. They were twins. And he would trick Esau out of that right, out of that right of the firstborn, which, of course, we know Isaac, uh, we're told in Scripture, favored Esau. And that would have been natural, um, not only because, you know, we see that he's a little bit more, um, he's a hunter, he's kind of outdoorsy, and I'm sure Isaac really liked that, and um, Jacob stayed near the house, but also it would have been natural for him to favor the firstborn and for him to be the child of the promise. But we know that Jacob ends up being the child of the promise. Then now we go to Jacob's kids. Reuben was his firstborn son. Reuben is pretty unimportant as, as far as the story of scripture goes. Um, Judah's line is favored. I want to say Judah was like the third or fourth born. Don't quote me on that. I don't remember, but he wasn't the first. And I don't even think he was the second. So his line is favored. We know that uh, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. So ultimately that line that goes um, from Abraham uh, to Jesus goes through Judah, not through Reuben. And then of course, we know that Jacob's favorite son was Joseph, who was the youngest. Uh, Benjamin's going to come later. 
Um, and then he becomes the favorite. And that largely has to do with uh, the fact that Joseph and Benjamin were born to Rachel as opposed to Leah. Rachel was the one that he loved. Uh, when we go to the time of David, once it's time, once God decides that Saul's not the guy, he goes to the sons of Jesse, uh, Samuel does, and he looks them all over and he says, are, are these all of them? God's not really thinking that any of these are his choice. And he's like, well, the youngest is out keeping the sheep. And that was David. Okay. And David, of course, we know is the one who is chosen of David's children. Solomon was the 10th overall born, at least. Um, he and Bathsheba have, do have a miscarriage and it's unsure if uh, the name of the child that miscarried is included in the genealogy. So he's at least the 10th born to his, just to his wives. So that's not even counting all the uh, extra ladies he had running around. Um, and then he's not even Bathsheba's first, not even including the uh, miscarriage or well, actually the child dies at week old. So not technically a miscarriage, but dies in infancy. He's the fourth, at least the fourth born to Bathsheba. And then of course, now we see Isaac is the child of promise and not Ishmael. Okay, so what's the point? There's all these non-firstborns that are, you know, coming up. What's the point of that, right? So the point is, Scripture is really telling us a story. God is trying to communicate to us. And it's something that we see regularly in Scripture and need to take note of, is that the chosen of God is more important than what we as humans expect or would choose as valuable. So the, the choice of God, the plan of God, the, the heart that God seeks in a person is more important than what we expect or what we view. So this really shows us a couple of things. One, that relying on our own wisdom um, and the things that we think would be best and not consulting what God would think would be best, we can regularly find ourselves being foolish um, in that because God's way doesn't always in fact, it rarely follows the ways that humanity would choose. And so that's the first. The second is God looks at the innermost part of a person. God's choice shows that he can use even the unexpected of society to accomplish his purposes. And that a person has God's blessing, God's guidance is more important than any status or look that they have. David and Saul make a great comparison for one another because Saul looked exactly like what they wanted and he was a terrible king. David was not what anyone expected and he was ultimately the uh, father of the or the ancestor of Jesus through the uh, biological genealogy. So there you go. So primogeniture in scripture, it's something that's regularly being overturned and it's being overturned in favor of God's choice and the matters of a person's heart. And so we can honestly give glory to God in that, knowing that even the lesser of society he uses for his purposes and uses them for good. So, uh, and then we also get to celebrate that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's chosen. Jesus is a firstborn son, but more importantly, he is chosen by God, even more important than that he is God. So we see Jesus once again as this ultimate fulfillment of the of God and then uh, a man who lived a life of faithfulness um, and that could not be shamed for any reason based on uh, the human life that he lived. Even in this, he was the firstborn and he was chosen of God. So we see him as that perfect fulfillment. So little side note, but something that I think is important and 
has some good uh, some good implications for us to remember as we are just reminded of God's character and how and how He works, and that it's not always through whom or in what circumstances that we expect. So, all right, now moving to the uncomfortable part of Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. The heading says, "Man, this story." You just have to think. Abraham must feel so uncomfortable this whole time. Let's get into it. And you'll feel uncomfortable too if you're anything like me. And when you read something, you feel like you're there and everybody's looking at you. Uh, Genesis 22, 1 through 3 says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So God, we as the reader, see that God is testing Abraham. And that maybe leads us to think that nothing bad's going to happen. Of course, we know nothing bad's going to happen, but... At the same time, tested doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, it's all going to end up being a ruse or like, oh, he's going to change his mind. We don't know what's going to happen. We just know there's a test and that it involves a very difficult exam. So um, it is this great tension. Like we just got done with the whole Ishmael epic. Um, He's been sent away. So there's not like this backup uh, heir waiting. It's just Isaac. That's why I think that um, God says your only son, Isaac, um, because I mean, it is the only one that he currently has there. Um, he tells him you love, and he's like, just so you know, I remember that you love him. Um, and I need you to offer him on, uh, the altar. And so Abraham goes and he does it. He starts getting ready. He gets everything that they need. Abraham's, it seems like he's the only one who knows what's going on. He tells his young man, you know, stay over here. Um, we're going to go over there and worship. That's what he says in verse five, which makes you think that, they didn't know what was going on. Isaac, I'm sure, did not know what's going on. We kind of see that here, too. Um, so you have to imagine this great tension rising up in Abraham as he plans to obey God and sacrifice Isaac. So uh, moving down to verse 7, it says, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So uh, Abraham, it seems like what we see in verse 8, he seems to be holding out some hope. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Um, it's maybe, I mean, he could be referring to Isaac, but it seems almost like he's he's still hopeful. He's hopeful that God is still going to provide even in the midst of this. Um, and again, this is where it gets real uncomfortable. Um, ties him up and puts him up on the altar. And then he's got the knife ready to slaughter him. You have to think that is just like absolute anguish for both of them and horrible and dad, what the, what are you doing? Um, and you know, they're both, I'm sure crying, terrified, all this kind of stuff, but Abraham's going forward obediently, but then we get the tension relief here. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place of that or the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Whew. Close one. So uh, not only is uh, Abraham's hand stayed, but also there is still an opportunity for an offering as God provides the offering, which, um, of course, this whole scene calls to mind the idea that God also gave up his only son in Jesus. But um, this is something that he went through, like that he went through with, um, that he did ultimately die. Um, and we see that the um, comparison here or the analogy here that uh, how far God is willing to go for us, um, that it's kind of this combination of the part with the son and then the provision of the uh, lamb that Abraham talks about in verse eight, and then the actual, the ram that comes up in verse 13. Um, there's just a lot of imagery here about what God will willingly do on our behalf with on the cross even down to the uh, the wood. You know, you think about Isaac being laid on the wood, Jesus on the cross. There's a lot of imagery here um, for how God will ultimately sacrifice his son for us. Um, but uh, what we see here in the aftermath, we see God is very pleased because anybody who thinks this is a like scene of cruelty, that he really wanted him to kill his son, like you, you can kind of tell by the way it ends that that was never the plan. Yeah, there was some anguish in there. Um, and I don't want to uh, minimize that, but at the same time say, oh, God was being cruel because he wanted him to kill Isaac. Well, no, he he didn't want him to kill Isaac. That was kind of the point. Um, but God was very pleased with Abraham's obedience, even though he didn't know how the story was going to end, that he was still obedient. And he gives this very important promise to Abraham in verse 15 through 18. He says, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God has obviously made this promise to Abraham before. These are similar uh, or these are familiar promises that God's already made um, that he's now repeating. But he says this really powerful thing, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. So the Lord not only has now given this promise, made this covenant with Abraham, but he has doubled down on it by swearing on himself. And so we actually get some really helpful commentary on this whole situation from Hebrews. We get it from the uh, part about the sacrifice of Isaac and even to this where God swears on himself. So first regarding Isaac, we see it in Hebrews 11 and it says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what we see about the faith of Abraham is not just that he was 
willing to do what God asked him to, but that his faith in what God had promised him was so strong that as this whole event is unfolding, Abraham has in his mind, I guess if I go through with this, God is going to raise him from the dead. He was that certain that what God was going to accomplish through Isaac that he had promised to Abraham, he was so he had so much faith in that promise that God had made. He had so much faith in God that he assumed even if this happens and I go through with it and I kill Isaac, God's going to raise him up from the dead because I know that he's going to keep his promise to me. So we're talking here about an incredible amount of faith that Abraham shows that even in the midst of this horrible thing, he still knew that God was going to keep his promise. So we see that wonderful and very helpful commentary in Hebrews. But we also see a little bit of commentary about this aspect of God swearing upon himself and what that means and how we accept that. So that's actually back in Hebrews 6, verse 13 through 20. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what we see here in this passage of Hebrews is an explanation kind of using a human argument. Um, If somebody wants to swear, they swear by someone greater, and that is a way of Ensuring their oath, God had no one greater by whom to swear. He is the greatest, so he swore by his very self. And so it says that we have uh, two unchangeable things. One is that God has sworn by himself, and two, and not less importantly, he has already made this oath, this covenant with Abraham. So it's basically what the author of Hebrews is telling us is in order to show Abraham how serious he was, he gave him basically a double dose of, of unchangeable things, which was this oath and the covenant that he already had. So by this time, when we see Abraham in Genesis 22, if there were any doubt that this, this promise was going to come through Abraham, uh, any doubt that could come with that is thrown out because God has doubled down in the most divine and unchangeable way on this, on this idea that Abraham would um, get this land, that he would have uh, many descendants, that he'd be a great nation, that he would be uh, a blessing to the earth. So then the author of Hebrews says that for us, we have a great encouragement in this. So verse uh, 19, 619 is actually my wife Caitlin's favorite verse. But basically, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hopes that before us, this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul is... Uh, who God is. That is what our sure and steadfast anchor is. So just as Abraham had this hope before him that he would have descendants, that he would be made a great nation, that he would be a blessing to all the nations, we also have a hope that is set before us. 
And the author of Hebrews is telling us this is the same God. This is the same God who kept his promise to Abraham, swore upon himself. The same one is the guarantor of this covenant that we have here in the new covenant with our faith in Jesus. And then it also talks about how this hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that referring to uh, the inner part of the temple where only the high priest could go once a year. And it's where the presence of God dwelt, but that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And then of course we get another mention of Melchizedek. How fun. But basically comparing this promise to Abraham to the promise that we have for us, this hope that we have in Jesus. So what we can really learn from this story we can, there's a lot of things we've learned. One, um, as we talked about with the rights of primogeniture, knowing that God's choice and what God would have us to, what God is calling us to, is more important than what the world would call us to. And that's something that we have to be ever mindful of, is that being chosen of God as we as believers are, we are set in a, di- a direction that is different than the direction of the world. And that's something that we have to know is par for the course for all of God's people for all time. Second, just like we saw in Hebrews 11 about Abraham's faith that he would even raise Isaac from the dead. We can have faith like this in what God is calling us to. Whatever it is in your life that God is calling you to, something that seems difficult, something that seems maybe even impossible, but you're sure that it's what God is calling you to, you can continue to pursue it. Because if God is able even to raise from the dead, then what is he not able to do to help us accomplish what he has called us to that will ultimately lead to his glory? And then third, we can be certain that what God has promised is true. Just a few of the things that we are promised, we're promised that we're forgiven. Sometimes it's hard for us to be certain that we are forgiven. When we see ourselves in light of our own sin, we're like, am I I really forgiven? Is God really pleased with me as a son or a daughter? Um, He is. He promised. Um, and his promise is true. Um, we can be certain that things are working for our good. And again, anytime we talk about that, God's idea of what is our good, not our idea of our good. Our idea of our good would be um, very fancy and comfortable. God's idea of our good is to become more like Jesus, to reflect Jesus to other people. We can trust that even in the midst of great difficulty and great trial and turmoil, that even those things are working for our good, to conform us more into the image of Christ and to bring God glory. And we can trust and we can be absolutely certain that his way is best, even when it seems difficult. Those things that get in our way, the people that would get in our way, that would uh, have an opinion that would be counter to what God's calling us to, that would say to follow God is foolish, um, bigoted, um, any of the words that people might come up with to describe what it looks like to follow God. We have to be able to trust that this same God that was so faithful to Abraham is going to be faithful to us, even in the midst of calling us to difficult things. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, I hope that um, you can see how God is speaking to you through this lesson. I know for me, as I studied it, that was really valuable for me. And I hope that our attitude can really just be to just rest in the character of God, to know that his choice, his plans Uh, are certain and that they're good and they're better than anything that we could ever choose for ourselves.